Amen. Thanks, Corey. Well, hey, good morning. If I haven't met you before, my name is David Smith. And if you think about, uh, Corey just talked about the last worship song we did today is called Lift You High. And I feel like in some ways it's kind of become an anthem to our church, uh, especially that last part. I won't let the rocks cry out in my, pla- in my place. And I, I don't know, I, w- I just got back from Westchester like two minutes ago. So I think you guys were singing. I think you were into it. But typically when we sing that song, this room like rattles and you guys sing it with such conviction, with such passion. And what I wanna make sure you know that when you are singing that last part, I won't let the rocks cry out from, uh, from the grave. Uh, well, excuse me, I won't let the rocks cry out. I was going about 85 to 90, so I feel like I just need to repent. I don't know how I got so far behind. Uh, it's typically not like that. But when you sing those words, I won't let the rocks cry out in my place, what you're really singing about is Palm Sunday, which of course is today. Palm Sunday is that Sunday right before Easter. We celebrate today by remembering Jesus on a donkey coming down the Mount of Olives into Jerusalem. And when he comes into Jerusalem, waving for him by the entrance to the city is this jubilant crowd. They are waving palm branches. They are praising God. And as they do that, and you think about there could be no more jubilant scene in all the earth, there's actually a group there that day that's really not in a joyful mood. We see it in Luke chapter 19, verse 39. It says, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, rebuke your disciples, stop them from crying out. And Jesus replied, I tell you, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. Now the stones that Jesus is referring to is most likely the cemetery stones or the tombs themselves. You can see on the picture behind me, on his way into Jerusalem, he is coming down the Mount of Olives, which where all of these tombs and these stones reside. Now the stones on top of the tombs represent that a righteous person was buried here. And so regardless of what he's referring to, the message of Jesus is quite clear. If the living won't praise me, then the dead will, because I am Lord over life and death. I'm Lord over all. So it doesn't really matter if the living won't praise me because the dead will. And here's why I share this, not just because it's Palm Sunday, but North Star, this is the kind of church that we want to be. The kind of church where the rocks are always quiet. That the dead don't have to cry out because the living of this church, they are always, always praising God. And so I wanted to take a little bit of a risk this morning. I felt middle of the week, I thought this is, I think God wants us to do this. And what I'm gonna ask is to take a risk all for the sole purpose of keeping those rocks quiet. And what I wanna know is that there's somebody here today that will come up here for one to two minutes and praise God. Don't let those rocks cry out. Now you don't have to sing, you can if you want, but what I'm asking is for someone to share one to two minutes, why do you love Jesus? What does he mean to you? And no worries, it'll only be caught on video for the rest of time, so no pressure. I'm two for two so far today not me, but God answering my prayer. Anybody want to share? Just one or two minutes. Why do you love Jesus? What does he mean to you? Anybody feel that? Come on up. Jeremy, give him a round of applause. 
This is not a plant, right? <laughs> That's right. You? Yeah. That's right. Uh, hello, my name is Jeremy, and uh, my daughter turned 15 yesterday. Stand up. Yeah, Ghibli. So w we adopted her 15 years ago. Yesterday, we were at UC University Hospital sleeping on the floor waiting for her birth mother to give her birth. And uh, the next day, with our lawyer, our attorney, uh, and some other family members, we were able to actually see her and hold her for the first time. And so, um, you know, since she was born, we've been praying that she would be a voice for her generation. And, uh, you know, the Lord is really upon her. And so we want to lift her up. And if everybody could sing happy birthday to her right yes. now, that would, li that, that would yes. give her great joy. All right. One, two, three. Happy, happy birthday, birthday to you. Happy I did turn my mic off during the singing. So it's <laughs> Jubilee, happy birthday, and uh, let's pray. So Father, thanks for this church family. Thanks for all you're doing. And we just, we want to be a place where the rocks don't cry out. The stones stay silent, Lord, because you have empowered us. You have moved us to praise your name. And so because of that, I pray any words, any motives, anything from my life that, that isn't in that direction, Lord, would you get rid of it? Because all we want to do today, Lord, is hear from you, your voice, love, your peace and power. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right. Well, before Paul was an apostle, he was maybe known as Saul the persecutor. And you may know the story of Paul on his way to Damascus. He is supernaturally blinded by God. And God says, stop persecuting the church and give your life to Jesus. That's exactly what Saul does. He gives his life to Jesus and begins following the risen king. Now, that's a very important moment right there. Obviously, the transition of Saul's life. But I want us to go a few steps before them. Let's rewind back to this first Palm Sunday. And hypothetically, I just want to imagine for a moment. What if Saul had been there on that first Palm Sunday? Like, just imagine. No historical records of it. But if he were there, I would imagine his heart would have been torn in two. Because half of his heart would have been disgusted. Why are you praising Jesus, this rabbi that doesn't follow the law like the Pharisees do? But he also would have been encouraged because he would have seen this crowd that was hungry and passionate for political conquest over Rome. Because most of the Israelites that were there that day in that first Palm Sunday, you need to understand, they weren't praising Jesus as the lone solution for the salvation of their soul. No, what they believed is that they needed Jesus plus an army, Jesus plus a new government, Jesus plus, you know, military revenge, and Jesus plus a political independence to finally have their soul satisfied, for finally for it to be enough. And so they waved their palm branches, not just because they were excited about Jesus, but because they thought Jesus was bringing a military and a political victory with them. Like, we think of the palm branches as this incredible symbol, and they are. But boy, were they confused when they were waving the palm branches that day. Because they needed Jesus plus so much else. The Israelites at that time, they were yoked to so many things other than God. 
and it was making them slaves to false expectations. You ever been a slave to a false expectation? You know how painful that may be. That can be. And so as they were slaves to these false expectations, it was because they were wearing so many other yokes in their hearts, around their necks. Now, when you guys hear the word yoke, you may picture something like this, two animals yoked together. Do you know animals can do not just double the amount of work, but we're talking quite a bit more when you're yoked together. Now, for humans, when we think about being yoked, I don't want us to just think about that picture. We also can be yoked spiritually, relationally, emotionally, just like practically. We can be yoked to so many different things. And so let's go back to those Jews on Palm Sunday. Let's just say it again. They were yoked to so many things outside of God. Covenant laws, national identity, political independence, military revenge, as if their soul was actually one with all these longings. Because that's what happens when you're yoked to something. Your soul longs to be one with that thing. That's why you're yoked in the first place. And so we want to go a few years later. Let's fast forward to after this first Palm Sunday, and let's go to the time of the early church. And we come to one of the first churches that was ever planted, the church in Galatia. Now, why do I bring this up and make this comparison? It's because the same struggle the Jews were having on Palm Sunday, though they weren't aware, is the same struggle that the Galatians are having, though they're not aware as well. And what they're feeling at that time is that their necks are being burdened by an entire stack of yokes. And these yokes have been brought upon by a group called the Judaizers. Jewish Christians, they've infiltrated the ranks, and what they've said is that Jesus plus nothing is not enough for your soul to be saved. Instead, what you need is Jesus plus a stack of yokes or plus the works of the law in order for your soul to be saved. And so Paul is writing to the Galatians to tell them, you are wearing too many yokes. You've got a stack lined up in your neck and in your heart, and we have to break them off. The entire purpose of the book is that you are wearing too many yokes, and it's time to get free. And so where Paul believed that Jesus plus nothing was enough for our souls to be saved, these Judaizers believed you needed so much more. Works of the law, a stack of yokes. Now, I want to be clear. When we say Jesus plus nothing is enough, we are not saying that you no longer have to do the things of Jesus. You no longer need healthy community. You don't need doctors. You don't need medicine. Not saying anything like that at all. Jesus plus nothing equals enough is a statement about our justification. Justification is a fancy theolo theological word. That means the moment you say yes to Jesus and you surrender it all to him as your Lord and your King, there is justification that happens in your soul. Your soul has been regenerated, and you will live with God forever. But that's a split moment. What happens from that moment to the day that you come face to face with Jesus is all called sanctification, another big word that just simply means the process of becoming more like Jesus. And so Jesus plus nothing is not a statement of our sanctification. It's a statement of our justification. Because guess what? After you say yes to Jesus, you're going to need more than Jesus. You're going to need a healthy community to challenge you, to love you, to spur you on. You're going to need the scriptures. You're going to need prayer. You're going to need a lot of other things outside of Jesus to become more like him. And so Paul is saying Jesus plus nothing is enough for your soul to be saved. 
And he jumps right back into that in chapter 5. Open up to verse 1. And this book, if you've noticed yet, it feels like it's on repeat. If you notice that, Paul is just saying the same thing over and over and over again. If you're a parent, why do you repeat the same thing to your kids over and over and over again? Two big reasons. Number one, because it's important. Number two, they're not listening. And so Paul sees this as a moment, you're not listening, and this is so important. So he repeats it for six entire chapters. And so our job as a teaching team up here at North Star is to be faithful to the Word of God. And so that means that we're going to repeat the same message for this entire series. Because it's that important, and we're going to look at it from a different angle. But Jesus plus nothing equals enough. And if we don't get that foundation when it comes to our salvation, everything else will crumble. Try to give you a different angle today, but it's really the same message. Here we go, verse 1 in chapter 5. He says, it's for freedom that Christ set us free. So stand firm and do not let yourself be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. The message is really simple. Hey guys, we were burdened by the law before. Jesus broke us out of jail. Why are you going back to prison? Why are you going back to being a slave? Like for some of us, like when we struggle with different things, whether it's a relationship or substance abuse, we put so much energy and effort, the intervention, the rehab, the conversations to break free. Why do we go back? Think about some of those people you dated in high school, in college, and they weren't that good to you. And it took three or four of your friends to get in your ear and say, hey, this isn't worth it. And so you find the strength, you break up, you go three or four months later, you feel like you're free, but then one night you're bored and you pick up that phone and your friends are yelling, why go back? Why are you going back? The Israelites did the same thing with Egypt. You know why they wanted to go back? For cucumbers, watermelon, better fruit. And God says, you remember the Red Sea? Remember the 10 plagues? Remember the slavery? Why are we going back? Paul's saying, don't go back. Mark my words. I tell you that if you let yourself be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Now, men, don't panic here. Don't panic, all right? <laughs> what he's saying here is if you allow yourself to be circumcised as a law to fulfill the salvation of your soul, then Jesus is of no value to you at all. That's a scary statement. Because what he's saying, if you come to the living God and you say, you need one of my actions to complete your defeat of death, then he's no longer God. He's no longer king because God doesn't need our help. He doesn't come up short. So the moment that you think that God needs some of your actions to complete his defeat of death, he's no longer any value to you because he's no longer your king. He's no longer God. Again, I declare to you, every man who lets himself be circumcised, that he is obligated to obey the whole law. Paul is saying there's two sports going on here. We've got basketball and we've got football. Two different games, but there's a winner and a loser in both. So if you want to play this game of saved by grace, great. Jesus plus nothing is enough. But if you want to play this other game, saved by works, you can. You can play it. I'll roll the ball out. Go for it. But if you're going to win that game, you got to be perfect. Not a lustful thought. No gossip, no lies, perfect, sinless. That's the only way you win. 
That's the way you play this game. But we don't have to play it. Because of the fall of mankind in Genesis chapter 3, we are all born with a sinful nature. The only way you can win this is if you are sinless like God and you are not. You can't win this game. You who are trying to be justified, saved by the law, have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace, the grace that Jesus saves. For through the Spirit we eagerly await by faith the righteousness for which we hope. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. By the way, he's saying here, if you want to spot saving faith, find a person who's overflowing with love. I don't mean 100% of the time, but somebody whose life is characterized and defined by love overflowing as they go from day to day. Like if you'd have looked at my life a few days ago, wasn't overflowing with love. And so there could have been people in that moment that looked at me and said, I'm not even sure if that guy is a follower of Jesus. Paul says, that's the way you spot saving faith. You were running a good race. Who cut in on you to keep you from obeying the truth? That kind of persuasion does not come from the one who calls you. And then he has a quote here, look in quotations. It says, a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. And so in the Bible, when you see yeast, I want you to also think of a virus because yeast infiltrates the entire batch of dough like the, like the virus of the, fair, uh, excuse me, the Judaizers is impacting and infiltrating the entire Galatian church. Remember this, he calls them yeast. He says, I'm confident in the Lord that you will take no other view. The one who has thrown you into confusion, whoever that may be, may they pay the penalty. Brothers and sisters, if I am still preaching circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been abolished. And as for those Judaizers, those agitators, I wish they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. Now, is Paul saying here that he wishes the Judaizers would sever their male reproductive organs? Is that what he's saying? Can I get, is that yes or no? Yeah, that's, that's what he's saying here. Now, is Paul walking around with a butcher's knife looking to attack people? I don't think that's the case either. But he's not saying, I wish they would nick themselves while they're shaving. He is saying, I wish they would lose a part of their body. Now, why that part? This isn't to be crude. But to think about the Judaizers running around with that severed, they're not able to reproduce children. And this begins to highlight what Paul was talking about in verse 9. They're yeast. They're a virus. And they're causing illness in the entire church body. And one of the ways we can slow down that virus from spreading is making sure that these Judaizers do not reproduce any heirs of this heresy. And so is Paul wanting to attack anybody? No. But what he's saying is the importance of this virus Stopping its spread is of utmost importance. This has to stop. We'll go to any lengths, won't attack anybody, won't cut somebody up, but this virus has to stop because it's starting to spread. And so instead of living as a slave with a stack of yokes around our neck, Paul says to the Galatians, you, my brothers and sisters, you were called to be free, not to be slaves. Hear this as if Paul is writing it specifically to you. 
We weren't called to be slaves. You were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. In other words, Jesus plus nothing is not this free pass to sin however we like, but rather serve one another humbly in love, for the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one commandment, to love your neighbor as yourself. Isn't that interesting? Here's Paul summarizing this in this pinnacle of a way. The entire law is fulfilled in this one command. You better get this right. Just one command, love your neighbor as yourself. But the reason why it stopped me in my tracks is I began thinking, wait a minute. In Matthew 22, Jesus is approached by this teacher of the law, and the teacher says, all right, Jesus, what is the most important commandment of God? And Jesus doesn't say, love your neighbor as yourself. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. He's not making it up. He's just quoting the Old Testament. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 to 5. Do you know that so many of Jesus' answers, he's just pulling from the Old Testament. Followers of Jesus, don't throw out the Old Testament. Jesus didn't. He says the number one command, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then even though he wasn't asked, he provides a freebie. Hey, let me also tell you the second most important commandment. It's love your neighbor as yourself. Leviticus 19, 18. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's number two. And so why in this moment, when Paul is making this all-important summary, the entire law is fulfilled in this one command, why does he give us the second most important commandment instead of the first? And it kind of paralyzed me. And I just sat there and thought about it. Why? Why in this moment would he choose number two instead of number one? And so I forced myself, don't jump online, don't read any commentaries, don't call the people smarter than you, just stay put and see what the Lord says. And here's what I think the Lord said, I could be totally wrong. But the first thing that came to mind was verse 15 of the same chapter. It said that those within the Galatian church were biting, devouring, and destroying each other. So maybe there was just a relevant obstacle that Paul had to address. Hey, love one another, right? The best that you can, as you would love your neighbor as yourself, just that's how you need to be if we're gonna get over this obstacle. But then I also thought, well, what if Paul in this moment is referencing a teaching of Jesus? And what popped in mind was John chapter 13, verses 35. Let me read this. I think there may be something here. Jesus says, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So not only would it make sense that Paul is pulling from the teaching of Jesus and maybe John 13, we don't know, but it also makes sense because think about the main issue in the Galatian church. If we're to summarize the main issue, it's that we've got people who no longer look like disciples of Jesus. Instead, what they're looking like is disciples of this old covenant custom. That's the problem. You're no longer looking like a disciple of Jesus, but instead, we are looking like disciples of these old covenant customs, these yokes that do not save. And so whenever I get like a little nugget out of scripture, even if it's just for myself, the next thing that comes up is a mirror. And I've got to ask myself the same question. Like, what about me? What about each and every one of us? When people look at our life and they start thinking, who is this person a disciple of? What answer do you think comes to their mind? When people look at our lives, who do they think we're a disciple of? If this week you're gonna go and ask your classmates, 
your coworkers, your neighbors, and you say to them, hey, when you look at my life, who do you think I'm a disciple of? How do you think they're going to answer? Are they going to say, well, obviously you're a disciple of the Cincinnati Bengals. Like, I see how you spend your time, your energy, your money. I hear you on Sunday morning next door. Like, yeah. You're a disciple of the Bengals. Are you a disciple of Procter & Gamble? Disciple of GE? CNN? Fox News? Oprah Winfrey? Some celebrity pastor? Or do they look at our life and immediately think, oh, no, no, no. You're a disciple of Jesus. Yeah, you're not perfect. But I can see what you're all about. I can see what you're striving for, what's important to you. When people look at our lives, who do they think we're a disciple of? Ten years ago, we were doing uh, discipleship training down at Crossroads Church. It's kind of a small church in Oakley. Have you guys ever heard of them? Like, pretty, we, we taught them a lot over the years. Uh, joking, sarcasm. Um, but we love those guys, and we were down there for like two years straight with about ten other churches doing some training on discipleship. And toward the end, they had us all in our groups, and we went around and we just decided to share, hey, what is it about each of you that reminds us of Jesus? And I was really excited about this. Like, I couldn't wait for them to come to me and say, oh, David, when we look at your life, here's how we're reminded of Jesus. And so the first three guys went, and it was beautiful. Oh, we look at your life, you remind me of the grace and the love of Jesus. The next guy, the patience of Jesus. The next guy, the persistence of Jesus. And they get to me. Here's my moment, right? Two years of discipleship training, waiting for my gift. And this guy starts off, and I kid you not, he says, David, when I look at you, it reminds me of the Red Cross. Now, not bad. There could be worse things that you can remind people of. But I was kind of hoping for Jesus. That was the activity. Those were the instructions. But he says, you remind me of the Red Cross because you take action. Like this emergency relief organization, you jump in, you love the marginalized, and you will respond when there's a need. And that was really sweet. But on the inside, I'm dying. Because I can't believe these guys who I've spent two years with, as they look at my life, the first thing they think about is the Red Cross instead of Jesus. And you may go, well, David, that's, that's, again, that's a little sensitive, just get over it. But what they saw is somebody who does the things of Jesus, but not necessarily is all about Jesus. And that was so true of my life 10 years ago. And it's still a struggle today. That David's all about doing the things of Jesus, but does he really love Jesus? And so in a way, that was one of the biggest wake-up calls in my life. You think I'm a disciple of the Red Cross, not necessarily a disciple of Jesus. But at that point in my life, I wasn't really a worshiper. I wasn't pursuing intimacy with Jesus. My prayer life, studying the scriptures, was kind of on the back burner of all these other things I had to accomplish and I had to do. So their feedback made complete sense. But boy, that was a wake-up call. The rest of chapter 5 goes on to explain what a disciple of Jesus does. They talk a lot about the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience. That's great, but they're kind of squishy words. In fact, some of you have come to me. And he said, David, that's great. You know, I love the fruit of the Spirit, but what am I supposed to do as a disciple of Jesus? And unfortunately, there is not this comprehensive list in the Bible that says a, a disciple does this, 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 this. You've got to scour the scriptures, pull from different places, 
And so if you go read the book by Richard Foster, Celebration of Discipline, he's done his best to list out, hey, here are the things that a disciple of Jesus does. We've tried it with our Pathway workbooks and part of the Pathway groups is we go, hey, there's things like evangelism, listening to God, Sabbath, prayer, generosity, all these things that we believe are things that disciples do. We've just tried our best with that list. But regardless of what a disciple does, here's where I really want us to start. I want us to start asking this question. If people can't quickly identify me as a disciple of Jesus, just asking why is that? Why is that? Because that's a problem. Why can't they quickly identify me as a disciple of Jesus? And I know from my own life, the reason is this. It's because I am wearing too many yokes. There is a stack of yokes around my neck, and they have to come off. And you know the yoke I wear probably more than any of them is the yoke of reputation. Like, I've shared this before. Like, I, I want your guys' approval. And not even just you. I mean, people out in my day-to-day life. And what happens because of that yoke I wear is that with this obsession of people liking me, it overshadows my love for Jesus. And so they can't necessarily tell that David is a disciple of Jesus because this other yoke is like a cloud. It's a mist in the room. And my obsession of other people liking me, giving me respect and approval, is actually overshadowing my love for Jesus. It still may be there, but boy, it's overshadowed. We only need one yoke. So when we say yes to Jesus as our Lord and Savior, who died on the cross for our sins and rose again to give us life, what you're doing is you're devoting yourself to wearing just one yoke for the rest of your life. And if you have not made that decision, there's going to be prayer teams up here afterwards that would love to tell you more about what that means. When Jesus talks about his yoke, he says in Matthew 11, verse 30, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Why is the yoke of Jesus easy? Because when you give your life to Jesus, we no longer are crushed under the weight of the yokes of the law and of the rules. Now, do we still do some of the Old Testament stuff? Absolutely. Honor your father and your mother. Take a Sabbath. Refrain from sin. Study the scriptures. There are so many things in the Old Testament we still do today as followers of Jesus. Here's the difference. Here's where it all comes down to. The reason we do these things is not because they are rules of God that I need to save my soul. We do them because we're ruled by God. And I want to be like him. Not because they're rules of God, but they are, we are ruled by Jesus. And I just want to be more like him. So as we close, I want to go back to that first Palm Sunday. Luke 19, 37, it said the people were there praising God because of the miracles they had seen. In fact, so many there at Palm Sunday, that very first one, the reason they were praising Jesus is that earlier they had seen a healing, a deliverance. They had seen something they had never seen before. And it changed them to the point where they were showing up at Jerusalem and they were going to keep praising God. They had seen something they had never seen before. Have you ever had that moment? Like you see something, I've never seen that before. And it changes you, doesn't it? at least for a short period of time. I saw something I've never seen before about a year ago. As a friend of mine, for like the last 15 years, he has had a stronghold that he wasn't aware of. And so finally, it was last year sometime, he came to myself and some of the guys at North Star and said, listen, I recognize now I've got a stronghold in my life and I need it to be broken. And he's given me permission to share this. 
And so we said, fine, let's, let's get together and let's pray for this stronghold to be broken. And during this prayer setting, it's probably three or four minutes in, and I started seeing something I had never seen before. I had seen bits and pieces. And what's interesting, after this moment, I've seen this a few times since, but right there a year ago, in this moment with my friend, I saw something I've never, ever seen. And what I saw, and these are the only words I can think of, is I saw a demonic stronghold manifest in a way I have never seen. We're talking stuff you see in the movies. Now, if you've known me for a while, you know I take it pretty seriously that when we're up on this stage, there is zero exaggeration. Zero. I take that so seriously that you guys can trust what comes out of our mouth. And so if you're somebody who's still wondering, is all this real, good and evil, light and dark, God and Satan? Let me just tell you, it's real. It is real. And when you see it, that up close and that personal, it changes you. And the way it changed me, it was just this urgency, maybe this compassion, just began to bubble up inside of me like I've never had. I still have lulls, I still have ups and downs, but something changed that day. My friend, at some point, probably about five minutes in, there was a release, something broke, and he's been a different man ever since. That's why I love sharing the story a year later. He's been a different person since. When you see something you've never seen before, it absolutely changes you. And I think that's what's so alarming about this first Palm Sunday crowd. They had been changed. They had seen something they had never seen before. It moved them into action. It changed them. But yet just a few days later, when Jesus was arrested and crucified, they scattered. They were done with him. And the reason why is because that crowd, there that day, they needed Jesus plus a victory over Rome. They needed Jesus plus an Israelite kingdom. They need Jesus plus bragging rights, and they got none of it. And so they scattered, and they left. They were wearing too many yokes, and they missed the Messiah. How many yokes are we wearing? How many things outside of Jesus have we made one with our soul, with our salvation, with our identity? I just want you to know if there's anything in your life today that you feel like emotionally, relationally, spiritually, physically is a stronghold, is a yoke that's around your neck, it can be broken today. That's why these prayer teams are going to be up here. Not so they can pray some fairy tale prayer over you, but that yokes and strongholds can be broken. Because what is Paul saying throughout this whole chapter? You were created to be free people, not slaves. Disciples of Jesus wear just one yoke. That's why they don't miss the Messiah. I want us to be people that only wear one yoke. And so if there's anything today that needs to be broken, let's just start by asking. Let's pray. So Father, thank you for your saving power, for your ability to break any chain, any hardship, any heartache, Father, we love you. We ask, would you move in a way right now we've never seen before? Would you change us from the inside out? Lord, we love you. And we admit and we confess, we repent out loud, Lord. Here are the things, here are the yokes I'm wearing. 
Father, I repent and confess right now as a man and as uh, and my role at this church, I confess that I take that yoke of reputation all too often. And so Father, break us of this slavery today. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks, David. Jesus is going to break some yokes today. Let's get excited about that. That gets me excited. Um, in addition to that verse from Matthew where Jesus says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light, one of the first things that he says in publicly and as he starts his ministry, um, Katie shared this last week when we were doing prayer and healing at the end of the first set of worship. Jesus says this in Luke 4. It says, quoting the prophet Isaiah, the spirit of the Lord is upon me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and to set at liberty those who are oppressed. And I think as I hear that, I know that some of us hear that and we get really excited and some of us hear that and we're like, we're on the other end of that. And last week we sang the song, No Longer Slaves, where we said, I'm, I'm no longer a slave to fear, I'm a child of God. And as David's talking about these yokes, I feel like there could be some of us who we, we want that, that yoke that's easy and we want that yoke that's light, but we have this yoke that we've had for such a long time, there's like a comfortability with it, um, or that we don't know that what we don't know, that like it is, there's a weight to it, if that makes sense. So as David said, there's gonna be prayer teams up here. We're gonna have communion as well. Just a reminder of the cross and that light, easy yoke that Jesus invites us into by his death and resurrection on the cross. Would you guys stand with me? Prayer teams that are prepared to pray, if you would come forward. When I when I think of, I was praying and asking the Lord this morning and, and thinking about the comparison between earthly yokes and yokes of Jesus, is that when Jesus invites us in, there's an invitation. His yoke is easy and light. There's an invitation with that. And I, most of the time, with yokes of the world, there's a demand involved. There's works in there. There's an ask that we may or may not be able to do. There's, there's a heaviness and a burden with that. And Jesus is just saying, come, come as you are. Experience freedom, experience liberation. That's one of the first things he said. I, there's freedom here. My yoke is free, it's light, it's fun, it's easy. So if you're here this morning and maybe in my experience sometimes something spiritual can manifest physically, maybe you feel like there's almost this weight on your shoulders, maybe a weight, like sometimes people, you can feel it in your knees, somewhere in your body, but it, it's there could be a connection spiritually, not all the time, but sometimes. So I just invite you this morning, if you felt a tug, if you felt an invitation from the Lord, these prayer teams, they're prepared to pray with you and partner with the Holy Spirit and what he's speaking. I invite you forward for prayer. We want to break these heavy yokes this morning. We want freedom to, to come in this place. It was so cool to see that happen last week and, and a number of people that got healed, both physically and spiritually. We, we don't want that to just become a once every so often Sunday. We, every week, David said in the fall in the 20 years, like what's, 
What's uncommon now, we want to be a normality in the future. And I believe we're already heading towards that. So Jesus, we thank you that you have come to bring liberty and liberation and freedom to us who were bound slaves to sin. Jesus, I, I thank you that you are inviting us into the easy yoke that is sonship and daughtership of you today. us into.